Hey everybody, before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You could also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. All right, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. But today is a special episode. It is the new year. Happy New Year, everybody. And we are looking back at the previous year, a very, very, very strange year for both the world itself and movies. Uh, But we're looking at the top 10 movies of 2020. And as we've done in the last couple of years, I have both Josh Bell and Jason Harris from Awesome Movie Year joining me. So we are getting all three of our top 10 lists, as well as any crossover between the three of them. And we have a great conversation coming up for you. So before we get into that, it's a long one. So I'm just going to very quickly remind you to make sure you're subscribed to Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and wherever it is you listen to podcasts, you can also find Awesome Movie Year. You can also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. Check out the Patreon produced by David Rosen, which has great content from Piecing It Together, Awesome Movie Year, and my music. And other than that, let's just get into it because we got a lot of movies to talk about. All right, so back with us today uh, for what is becoming an awesome tradition is Josh Bell and Jason Harris from Awesome Movie Year for our top 10 of 2020. Josh and Jason, how are you guys doing? We are so good and so happy to be here. And as you know, I let Josh speak for me. <laughs> are you not happy to be here, Jason? I am. This was uh, a huge amount of work because... As you know, many of us had more time this year than ever to watch movies. Josh, you are always watching this amount of movies because you're uh, hanging on to that film critic title there, you know. But some of us, we just watch movies for fun. And uh, this year, I watched more than I think I ever have before. I definitely did. I I actually counted it up. I, I watched 303 movies this year, which is probably double what I've ever watched in one year before. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do watch a lot of movies, but I also watched a lot more. I mean that I, I usually watch, uh, maybe 400 ish movies a year and I'm at, I, around 550 for this year. So, uh, I too had uh, more movie watching time on my hands. Now, uh, as you, as you gents know, I'm quite a social butterfly, but, uh, I'm still mm-hmm. at uh, right under 270, about 268 for the year. And, uh, my social butterfly skills had, uh, no use this year. So it was a good thing there were movies around. <laughs> well, we talked to each other over this, uh, recording software. So that was good a lot. So yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> some human contact for us. 
Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so we're going to get into uh, our top 10 of this very strange year, and I'm sure we'll end up talking about the year itself a little bit along the way. Uh, And then, of course, like we've done in previous years, we'll also talk about three of our favorite movie moments of the year that may or may not have come from some of our picks. But before we get into our main countdown, I do want to get one honorable mention each out of the way first. This doesn't necessarily have to be like your number 11. It could be from anywhere else in the list of movies you watched throughout the year. Just something you want to make sure gets added into this conversation. So Jason, let's start with you. What do you have for an honorable mention? My honorable mention is my number 11, Dave. And uh, it was really in my top 10 until like literally earlier this week. And um, I think one of the big trends this year were really excellent coming of age movies and a lot of those mm-hmm. had female leads but this one had a male lead um and this one is a first feature from cooper rafe called shithouse um mm. and i really liked it it's about a guy who is having a very tough time adjusting to college and he is uh, a really unique lead because he uh wears his Hard on his sleeves as a sensitive character. You know, there's no macho or machismo that is blocking kind of who he is. And it's one of those kind of definitely we were influenced by Richard Linkletter. You know, let's let's uh, go on a date and spend 40 minutes of this movie on the date. And then mm-hmm. the next half of the movie uh, is kind of the aftermath. And it all worked for me. Uh, so Cooper uh, Rafe, Dylan Galula. Uh, she's the female lead. Very good movie, Shithouse. Yeah, great pick. And uh, I had a lot of fun doing that episode with you on that one. And uh, Josh, what did you think of that movie? I think I'm going to have something to say about that movie a little later. All so, right. All right. All right. <laughs> little yeah, preview very, there. Very good. Very good movie. All right, Josh, what do you got for your honorable mention? So my honorable mention is a horror movie called The Dark and the Wicked which maybe wouldn't have been number 11, but is definitely uh, in right below my top 10. And I wanted to get this in because I feel like this is a movie that maybe didn't get the attention it deserved this year, although it got very good reviews. And it's a return from Brian Bertino, who made this big splash with his first movie, The Strangers, which is a fantastic movie, is still one of the most unsettling, scariest movies I've ever seen. And then he kind of struggled to follow that up Um, He had a movie a few years ago called The Monster with Zoe Kazan that I thought was pretty good. But this is, I think, the first time that he's been able to recapture some of the really intense horror of The Strangers. And it's got a great performance from Marin Ireland as one of these two adult siblings who return to their family farm to care for their uh, dying father um, and are warned away by their mother because there's uh, the dark and the wicked is happening there. Um, <laughs> and it's a very simple horror story, but it really builds dread in an incredibly effective way, uh, just as he did in The Strangers. And I think this was a year when horror got a lot of attention, uh, given the, I don't know, uncertainty in the world. There's a certain comfort in watching a scary movie that you can then uh, be done with. Um, but I love horror, so I'm happy to see it get the attention. So the dark and the wicked is my honorable mention. Yeah, I'll go on record as saying the dark and the wicked is like the scariest movie I've seen in years. It is so fucking scary. (laughs) Jason, did you see that one? No, but you guys have me frightened just from talking about it. You know, um, (laughs) as you know, from past discussions, I usually gravitate towards like 
more of these like psychological thrillers or uh, suspense movie than just straight horror. And you guys are just saying this is like the scariest thing that's been around. So I don't necessarily see myself watching this one anytime soon. (laughs) Well, that's fair. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I'll go for my honorable mention with Minari from Lee Isaac Chung, which is just this beautiful movie about American life and the American dream through this Korean-American family and their experiences. It's not in my top 10 or even 20, like probably somewhere just below there, but I really wanted to single it out, though, because of the score from Emil Masseri, which is I would say far and away my favorite score of the year. Uh, It's just absolutely beautiful. It just really sets the scene for this movie while being unique but also kind of classic in a way and uh it's it's kind of haunting and beautiful and it's just it's everything you want in a great score and uh he had done the last black man in san francisco which is also one of my favorite scores of this past decade as well as homecoming the series which is another amazing score so uh emil Masseri is someone who is just so high on my radar right now whenever uh comes up as the composer for a new film that's exciting i mean that's on my list obviously it's not really available uh in las vegas dave's showing off that he's now a member of film critic <laughs> society and gets screeners good for you i will tell sure. you my favorite score though dave is uh, soul trent Reznor and atticus ross great score probably my number two yeah i haven't seen minari yet either although i look forward to it and uh i do have the screener but it's uh just one thing that i didn't quite get to yet and won't just be gathering dust while Jason is is just looking for it. This is just there ridiculous. How I'm, how I, my opinions and movies don't count the same as YouTube, apparently. <laughs> well, on this episode, we all count equally, right? That's right. not according That's to your right. critics group, Josh. It's not mine. No. <laughs> All right. All right. So let's move on to our actual top 10. Jason, what do you got for number 10? Uh, Number 10 was the last movie to make my list and just slid in. And man, I am still so fascinated by it. Uh, It's uh, another round and it is by Thomas Vintenberg. Uh, the Danish director. It's the Danish entry for the best foreign film this year. And Vintenberg and Lars von Trier were like the Dogma 95 guys. But this is a very stylish movie starring Mads Mikkelsen, who's getting tons of uh, awards acclaim. And the movie's getting a lot of acclaim. It's about four best friends uh, who have kind of lost their spark in life at the age of 40. And they suggest trying out the uh, philosophy of uh, this... uh, kind of, uh, I guess he would be a philosopher, uh, Finn Skarderud, who said that uh, man was born with a 0.05 blood alcohol level deficiency, so you should always have like a glass of wine or two in your system at all times. And you can imagine how the fun and games go, and then it gets dark. And one of my big issues with movies this year has been tonal shifts not working. And this one worked so well. And then the ending is... It's so fascinating. I still haven't uh, resolved what the ending means, and I. But I think there is very clear resolutions you can take from the ending. You could say this is what it means, or that's what it means. And I just was, I couldn't believe it. Like this is so good, and I want you guys to jump in. But I just want to say also, it's kind of tragic how this film developed because originally Vindenberg uh, wrote it as a play, and it was kind of like more of a. Oh, we're all drunk all the time, like funsy gamesy thing. And his daughter Ida wanted him to make it into a movie, 
And like four days into production, she was killed in a car accident. And um, wow. he changed kind of the script and the tone of less about the alcohol and more about like a celebration of life and finding what it means. I mean, we just mentioned soul. That's kind of the, the theme there too. Um, and I just love this movie. I don't know. I don't know. It just sticks with me. And like I said, Mads Mikkelsen, give him, give him the awards. Like, let's do this thing. I really like this movie. Yeah, I watched this this morning, actually. It's my uh, last movie of the year, and it is really, really great. And his performance is fantastic. And yeah, that just, that feeling that it's got for, for life and just, you know, just trying to enjoy things. And uh, it, it's it's definitely a, a bit of a roller coaster, but it's uh, it's great. Absolutely great. Yeah, I liked it too. And I think that bittersweet element, I mean, it's sad that, that that's, I didn't know about that tragedy. And it's, it's unfortunate that that's how uh, that ended up being the way the movie uh, turned out. But I think that bittersweet element works really well. And the, the celebratory aspects of it are more powerful because of the, the sadder aspects of it. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys. Definitely a good movie. Awesome. Well, let's move on to Josh's number 10. So my number 10 is a movie that a lot of people didn't like, um, apparently. And uh, but I thought was fascinating and is the kind of thing that I guess could be thought of as stereotypical Oscar bait. Um, it is the Netflix film The Devil All the Time from Antonio Campos. And it has a lot of famous people doing accents and uh, <laughs> playing kind of dark characters. And I suppose, again, it's the kind of thing that that maybe would seem like it's trying too hard to win awards. And of course, it will not win any awards because it was got mixed to negative reviews. But I thought it was a really engrossing, sprawling portrait of this kind of dark rural corner of it's not really the South, um, although it has aspects that we think of as sort of Southern um, and the accents, which are something. And I think it's funny, people complained about it. It's a lot of British actors in this movie, especially Robert Pattinson, uh, who does an insane accent, um, <laughs> as well as uh, Tom Holland and uh, Harry Melling, uh, Jason Clark, who's Australian, but not all of these non-American stars, Mia Wasikowska. And, um, but I thought the artificiality of it was part of its charm. That is this a realistic portrayal of life in these small uh, hamlets in Ohio and Kentucky? I doubt it. Although it's based on a novel by an author who actually lived in that area and presumably had that experience. And he also narrates the movie, which I think is a really effective tool. He has this great warm voice that really uh, gets across the literary qualities of the story. But I wasn't concerned so much about whether it was that realistic portrayal, just that it was this fascinating tapestry of coincidences and mishaps and dark developments in these characters' lives over the period of, of many years. I thought the performances were a lot of fun. You know, they may not be all that serious, really, in terms of whether it was awards bait, but Robert Pattinson especially is really going over the top in this oh, movie yeah. in a very enjoyable way, I think, as this terrible uh, preacher who comes into this town and just wreaks havoc. Uh, and Tom Holland is good. I mean, he's got the kind of upstanding uh, protagonist role, but there's there's dark elements to that. So uh, I just, it's not a short movie and it just kept my interest the whole way. So I think it's a shame that it didn't get better reviews. I liked it. I think one of the problems was that it could have been shorter and more effective had it cut 15 or 20 minutes. I uh, did like all of those kind of interweaving stories and like how one 
person does something bad to someone else, but then that person gets their comeuppance uh, with another character in there. Um, I like the scenery, as you know, I'm big on environment. Um, so yeah, overall, I thought it was a good movie. Um, the, probably in the twenties for me, but, uh, I thought it was a, a good film. So, um, you know, um, in, in a way you're talking about that Ohio, Kentucky border, Josh or West Virginia, right? This one or Ohio, Kentucky. Oh, I thought it was Kentucky. But yeah, but, they're, but they lived that. in West Virginia also, I think. Or yeah, it's a whole like uh, multi-state uh, yeah. area in those uh, mountains there. Kind of brought me back to some of the characters you'd find on Justified, a show that I loved. So, sure, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, good good, good film. Yeah, I liked it too. Um, didn't love it, but like, like Jason just said, I thought it was a little too long and kind of all over the place. But I, I did like a lot of those those performances and I, I like the Jason Clark stuff, which is just so ridiculously dark. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there's plenty to like in that movie for sure. Yeah. And I think the sprawling aspect of it, um, right. the the way that it is so long kind of uh, that worked for me, that enhanced it, but I can understand well, if you're well, and, lose patience with it. And I will say, Josh, I know a lot of the time those sprawling movies don't work for you because they get a little too heavy for your liking. Um, uh, you know, to, to use a, a random example, Crash, which uh, won Best Picture, what, 15, That's 16 very, years ago, right? very so, different kind of movie. No, but it is I one do, of those... I do hate that movie. Right, and it's all these characters and coincidences that tie them together, and I know you don't always go for that type of thing. So this yeah. one obviously uh, sparked to you for a reason. This is so much better. Crashes, we don't need to... I, I'm not talking about the movie. On that, but that movie what a tangent. Terrible. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I i see where he's coming from though yeah i yeah. totally understand no that's fair so uh i will go from that movie that features eliza scanlon to another movie that features eliza scanlon and that is baby teeth is my number 10 from director shannon murphy which uh was on my uh midway through the year top 10 list and is just a absolute emotional roller coaster um it's about this young girl played by eliza scanlon who's terminally ill she uh, falls in love with this loser drug dealer guy, and it's clearly a bad idea, but her parents just want her to experience something because there's just no telling how much time she has left. And uh, it's just, it's just, I think, a really beautiful movie. It's a funny movie. It's a sad movie. Like I said, it's like a roller coaster. It goes through every possible emotion, and uh, the performances are fantastic. Ben Mendelsohn as the dad is just one of the best performances of the year, I thought. And uh, for a genre that can go so, so wrong, the terminally ill teenager genre, uh, it, it just really does something interesting and uh, special with it, I think. Yeah, I watched this one in part because uh, you liked it so much, and um, I didn't. So not not for you, Josh. Not not for me. I I definitely don't really. I don't care for that genre. You're right; it can go wrong very easily. And I think this this kind of gave into too many of the things that I don't like about mm. those movies. And I also just hated that boyfriend. Like I just wanted them to call the cops on him like right away. And I just oh, he's I, trash. He's yeah, totally but trash. I mean, I think you need to you need to have some sort of sympathy or you mean to be invested in their their romance in order to be involved in that movie and i just didn't want them to be together at all and i didn't find it romantic or anything but you're certainly not the only one who loved that movie so i'm in the minority there because i i uh hate love i don't know <laughs> uh, i avoided watching it because of the genre but i like i like josh was saying i know a lot of 
people do like it. Um, I can relate to parents of a significant other calling me trash. No, wait, never mind. Let's move on. <laughs> there you go. Do you have any face tattoos, though? Because if not, you're ahead of this guy in this movie. That's no, true. I, That's I true. do have it on a list of movies I would like to watch, though. Yeah. Cool. Cool. What do you got for number nine? Jason? Number nine, uh, I'm sticking with the theme of alcohol here, is Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, from the Ross Brothers, Bill the Fourth and Turner, um, about a bar much akin to Dino's in Las Vegas called the Roaring Twenties uh, that is uh, supposed to be in Las Vegas, and it's on its last day uh, uh, of existence. Like the bar is going to close, all the regulars come in and out, you know, to celebrate. Um, uh, unfortunately they didn't really shoot anything here in Las Vegas except for the exteriors. Um, and I think Josh could talk more about that cause I know he's uh, done some research on it, but, um, I was fascinated by the process of it, which was that kind of idea of they're actors, but are they actors? And also like, they're just talking. It just feels very verite fly on the wall. Like these conversations and characters could be real. A lot of the early reviews were like, is this a documentary? I don't know, you know, but it's not, but it feels like it. Um, so, you know, it's not like really a story beyond like, Hey, these are the characters. This is the last day and that's it. But I don't know, man, it drew me in from the jump and, um, I was with it the whole way. Yeah. I think it creates a good atmosphere that it feels real. I mean, it, you can, you can see how people bought that it could be an actual documentary. Um, I felt like it was a little too shapeless and a little too, I mean, that's a product of making it seem real. Um, and that there were a lot of characters who just kind of came in and out and didn't really make much of an impact. Um, but overall, I liked the vibe of it. And it is it is kind of a, a shame that they felt that they couldn't capture Las Vegas by actually shooting in Las Vegas. Um, mm -hmm. They shot in New Orleans, which is where they are, the filmmakers are based. Um, but it does, as you said, it, it, it's, it feels familiar to people from here. If you hang out at a place like Dino's or the Huntridge Tavern or something, and they did at least get some, uh, local news broadcasts from KTNV where I do my movie reviews. So I appreciate that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, it is. It is a very interesting movie. And, uh, that, that whole like, like shaky line between whether it's a documentary or not is really interesting. And it's just really hard, you know, as a Vegas guy to accept a movie that supposedly is portraying a Vegas bar, which is probably one I would have been at all the time through my twenties and it's not real. So it's like, just makes the whole thing just kind of reek of fakeness, but it's still a very interesting. Yeah. Movie. But if you aren't from here, you wouldn't know that, you know, um, right. it is Absolutely. frustrating, but at least they don't do like, you know, to reference another current movie, Josh Con Air, um, where they, uh, <laughs> where they like, are like, Oh, this chase is at the hard rock. And now we're at the Sahara and now we're at the Tropicana and it's all one chase. You know, it feels like it's on a city block, like Dino's, you know, and I would like to see if the Ross brothers continue on in this, um, style and what they do next. And, uh, yes, we welcome you Ross brothers come shoot here in Las Vegas. Yeah, they shot some, as you said, the exteriors, but they they cheat that too, where the bar is like, is it supposed to be in like downtown Las Vegas? Is it in kind of like a 
rundown suburban area. Like they they mix all that together, just like people who shoot at the Hard Rock and then on the Strip and pretend it's all the same. Street, yeah. So. Well, for those right. who know, it feels like Dinos or like the dispensary. Uh, it's too light to be champagnes, but those are the ones that would come up in my mind. <laughs> sure, yeah. sure. All right, uh, Josh, what do you got for number nine? Well, my number nine pick is a movie that we already uh, brought up, which is uh, uh, Cooper Rafe's. <laughs> what is his name? Cooper Rafe's shit house. Uh, and I agree with everything Jason said. Uh, I think this is a it's an amazing debut for this very young filmmaker who's the writer and the director and the star and made this on a tiny budget and basically managed to make this movie by just tweeting at one of the Duplass brothers saying like, hey, dude, check me out. So, you know, quite a success story on that front. Um, but I mean, he he proved, I think he proved worthy of the support from the Duplasses on, you know, on very little evidence at first. It's it's certainly a familiar kind of story. Uh, you know, Jason mentioned Richard Linklater and those before movies are obviously a big influence here. But I think it's it's specific enough to these characters and especially that kind of time of life where you have the main character who is away at college and really has having a tough time being away from his family. And I like showing the the teenage dude who is really, really close to his mom and his sister. Um, I think that's something you don't see that often in films. And I liked that about it. Um, Dylan Galula, who I know mainly from uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt as uh, Xanthippi, the uh, oh, yeah. disaffected teen, who also has a nice arc about going to college on that show, if you ever watch uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. I think she's just as good. I mean, it doesn't work if it's just all about him. Um, Jason talked about tonal shifts. It's not a tonal shift as much, but just kind of a plot shift that occurs in the like last third of this movie that made it, it was like way high on my list and that brought it down a little, but I still think overall it's really good and I can't wait to see what he does next. Yeah, that it worked for me, that kind of plot shift. But uh, I wanted to bring up, you're talking about kind of these character tropes um, that are reversed, right? Like this kind of like Dylan Galula, like, so they hook up and, you know, obviously that's what it's building to. And then you, you know, a lot of the time we see the guy, it was just a hookup. Like, I'm going to move on with my life. And the girl becomes attached. And in this way, it's the complete opposite. And she's like, dude, move on, you know, and everything like this. Right. Uh, right. You know, so. And shout out to my boy Chinadu, comic I work with in L.A. who is in this movie, does a good job in it. So Nice. Who, oh, is he the uh, the terrible roommate who tries to be no, a comedian? No, he's the guy who he keeps trying to like get into the house, the basketball house, and oh, yeah. and he's like the freshman, and they keep like just tormenting him over like you know it's not a uh, Cooper Rafe's uh, best moment as a as a person on there, and then he gets he chases him for blocks at a time. So yeah, oh the yeah. door the doorman yeah. at the party yeah oh okay cool cool that's awesome. <laughs> well, I'll go on to my number nine, uh, which is a movie I know a lot of people didn't like, but uh, I loved, and that is Black Bear from director Lawrence Michael Levine. Uh, it starts out as this increasingly just tense night as this uh, writer goes to a lake house Airbnb type place and uh, starts getting to know the couple who live there that she's going to be staying with for the weekend while she works on her next film. And then things just go in a completely different direction from the middle section of the film. And uh, if this movie had just kept that first half going for the whole time, this would probably be my number one. That's how much I just absolutely loved everything going on between Aubrey Plaza, Christopher Abbott, and Sarah Gadon and that, that whole opening. I just think they're all just so 
just amazing. I think it's like fascinating watching them just get more increasingly and increasingly just uh, spiraling, you know, as it continues. But then there's speaking of tonal shifts, just like a complete shift in what the whole second half of the movie is. And I still really like where it goes. I think it's really interesting. It's it's one of those movies uh, like a mother or something like that, where you could totally picture people just walking out of the theater if this was something we were watching in the theater, uh, because it's just like, what the hell am I watching kind of movie? But uh, I had so much fun with it, and it's darkly comic. It is uh, a, a big, huge performance from Aubrey Plaza that's not really something we've ever gotten to see from her, at least not in this way before. And uh, I, I also just found it to be an interesting story to kind of dissect after the fact, trying to, trying to find meaning and all that kind of stuff. And it, I, I just think it's great. Yeah, I was one who didn't like it, although it seems like to me that most people liked it. I felt like I was in the minority and not liking it, you know, going oh, on really? Rotten, to- Rotten Tomatoes and posting my review. And it was at, you know, 90 whatever percent. It seemed like critically, at least people were into it. Maybe, maybe. On a wider audience level, it does seem like the kind of movie that could be very off-putting, like you say. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it just didn't work for me. I like Aubrey Plaza, and I like that she takes these big risks now. I think that's cool that she could easily just coast on being like sarcastic supporting character in comedies, and she's doing way more than that. But sure. I just found this movie grating. And it's funny that you said that about the first half, or it's a little less than half, but I just... Like f- right from the jump there, I was like, oh, God, I can't stand this. And then the, the, <laughs> yeah. the twist that that shifts it into a different kind of movie didn't didn't help. I mean, it's still the same kind of movie, I guess, just a different like right. arrangement of characters or whatever. But yeah, it didn't work for me. But uh, go Aubrey Plaza. There you go. Jason, you see it? Yeah. I didn't. But I want to echo Josh's sentiment. Go Aubrey Plaza. Yes, yes. I'm sure she appreciates that from us. all right jason number eight number eight was a film that young josh bell brought to my attention on your uh best films of the half year episode uh so don't ever say that i don't listen when i'm not on the show dave all right it's uh driveways driveways was awesome and that was another one where it's just a very small story a woman and her son have to go pack up the house of her hoarder sister who just died and um it's um you know the son kind of develops a relationship with the neighbor and that's pretty much the whole thing and it's hong chow who is just crushing everything watchmen and driveways as the lead and andrew on directed and i'm excited to see what he does going forward and uh this is brian Dennehy's last role and um, he just is so great and I hope he gets an Academy Award nomination for it. And it's just a lovely film. Yeah. I'm glad that you liked it and I'm glad I brought it to your attention. It's not on my list, but it's certainly, uh, just below that, uh, that point. And I, Brian Dennehy is great. And we've had so much talk this year about Chadwick Boseman and, uh, his potential posthumous Oscar nomination and not to take anything away from him because he is also great, but I hope that, uh, people remember Brian Dennehy as well. Yeah, I, I think that was a great movie. Hong Chao also very good on the most recent season of Homecoming, which overall is not good, but uh, <laughs> she does a good job with it as the main character. Yeah, I liked it too. Uh, and I didn't love it as much as both of you, but it's, you know, it's such a small little story. It's just a small movie, but uh, but yeah, I liked it though. Great performances all around. Yeah, and- imagine if like uh, movie theaters were still a thing. And it was like two in the afternoon and you somehow had the day off in the middle of the week and 
you had nothing to do and no one was around and you go to see this and you don't know anything about it and you come out and you're like, that was just a great way to spend an hour and a half of my time. That's kind of how I look at this movie. I'd be very happy if I had seen it in the theater, but <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Josh, what do you got for number eight? All right. Well, my number eight is a movie that I think maybe will be on uh, other lists here, but maybe not. I don't know. It's uh, Palm Springs, which was a huge as however we can quantify what is a hit in 2020. I feel like this was a very big hit. Uh, mm -hmm. It was it turned out to be a Hulu uh, original release. I think it was uh, meant to get some kind of theatrical opening at some point. But um it's 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 not surprising that this movie was a hit. It's a very crowd-pleasing kind of comedy with Andy Samberg, who is very funny and is a big comedy star, and uh, Krista Milioti, who I think is so good in this movie. And they have great romantic chemistry as this couple who are stuck in a time loop at a destination wedding in Palm Springs. And the time loops are like a big thing, apparently now. we, uh, Dave, we've talked about the Happy Death Day movies, I think, sure. on, on this podcast, which I enjoy, uh, as well as there was a Russian Doll, the Netflix series. And, and they, all of those examples use this device really well. And I think this movie does cool things with the time loop and clever things in order to build the central romance, uh, but also the, the sort of sci-fi-y aspects of it they give you just enough that it's intriguing without getting bogged down and like, let's explain the physics of this, which of course you can't do. Uh, mm -hmm. And J.K. Simmons also really entertaining in his supporting role as almost like the villain of the movie who has his own little arc and comes around to have a nice emotional moment as well. And Krista uh, Milioti has done a lot of stuff and she's been on Broadway and she was on How I Met Your Mother, but I feel like she's poised to be a big star and this could be something that gets her to that level. So I, I agree. She is great in this. I mean, everyone really is, but she, you, you want to see what she does next. Um, uh, one thing to point out, and this is up on my list a little higher up is that this script wasn't originally a time loop. It was just a romance, um, you know, kind of a leaving Las Vegas about two drunk people at a wedding in Palm Springs. And then the Lonely Island guys were like, yeah, but what if you time looped it? And like you said, the way they use the time <laughs> loop is cool. Uh, here's a quick spoiler in that one of the characters is already in the time loop. So we're getting it from a different place. Uh, also, it's interesting that time loops have become such a thing. Um, you would expect that next year, like as a reflection of this year, but it's interesting that it's happening while we're li living in what we seem to be, uh, you know, every day is a time loop. I watched Groundhog Day twice in a row this year. <laughs> so, wow. uh, good, good film, Josh. It's on my list further up. Yeah. And I wonder if maybe not that this wouldn't have been successful anyway, but if maybe one of the factors in it being a hit is it because it feels like it's reflective of the time that we're living in, even if that wasn't intentional originally. Yeah, it's kind of the perfect comedy for this year. And uh, it's not on my list, but uh, it is great, though. Very fun movie. Uh, so I'll go to my number eight, which is Bad Education from Corey Finley. Uh, after Thoroughbreds and this, he's now one of my favorite filmmakers working. I can't wait to see what he does next. But as for this, uh, it's an HBO original. It's about this teacher who everybody loves, but turns out to be part of this huge embezzlement scheme. And it's just, it's dark and fucked up and just, just a great, really, really pitch black, dark comedy, which uh, seems to be Corey Finley's thing. And uh, just great performances all around. Hugh Jackman is 
kind of never been better. Alice and Janney also is just uh, really, really good in this. And it's a movie that I'm really looking forward to like revisiting down the road. I think it's a movie that's going to age really well, uh, which is hard to say, but uh, it just feels like that kind of thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's the next thing on my list. So I'll get to awesome. it shortly. <laughs> it's on my list higher up, but I'll just say this. Uh, so that Hugh Jackman character, now an administrator, used to be a teacher. Oh, right, right. Um, and Alice and Jenny is a home run every time out, right? So um, great yeah. movie. And, um, you know, we're talking about these things like, oh, yeah, we miss theaters. But at the same time, like Hulu was the only place you were going to see Palm Springs. HBO bought Bad Education, you know, so – um the, the the world of streaming is upon us gents yeah those yeah, were both yeah, things yeah. that were in the works before theaters closed and dave hates it yes i hate it but it is what it is and uh yeah uh what do you got for seven jason <laughs> number seven rounding the corner at number seven. Oh, as i said this is the year for coming of age stories and uh what a nice film this was the half of it uh, Alice Wu, who hadn't made a movie in maybe a decade, right, or so, XXXY, right, um, who is, uh, she's, um, you know, one of the, even though it was just one film, right, like one of the major figures of uh, the last 20 years in, uh, I would say, LGBTQ filmmaking, Josh, is that fair? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that that first film that she made, Saving Face, was definitely pioneering, especially because it was from, like you say, at least a decade ago. Yeah. Um, okay, so anyway, this is about, uh, and this was another one, right to Netflix. What's up with that, Dave? Mm -hmm. This, uh, Leah Lewis and Daniel uh, Deemer, uh, actors who I didn't know, they uh, star in this film as Ellie and Paul, and then uh, Alexis Lemire as Aster. And it's this weird kind of like take on Cyrano de Bergerac where this uh, kind of athletic dude who he's not dumb. He just doesn't have the words to express himself uh, recruits Ellie uh, to kind of like help him, you know, um, kind of write love letters to the, the girl of his dreams, except it's also the girl of her dreams. So she ends up helping, but like, you know, and then they become, and Paul and Ellie become friends, but like, so there's all these like really interesting interweavings going on in the relationships. Ellie and Astor spend some time together and you're always like, where's this going? Where am I? I don't know exactly who feels what or when they're going to find out. You're waiting always for the shoe to drop. And I think when it does drop, it's rewarding. And, uh, the small town, uh, here, uh, I don't know if it's real Squahamish. I think, uh, in Washington state, a nice, uh, a nice setting as well. Best narrative feature at the 2020 Tribeca Film Festival, the Founders Award. Uh, it's just a very nice movie to watch. I agree. It was nice. I think I, I didn't like it quite as much as you did, but uh, it's, it's got a lot of what seemed to me that maybe like kind of extraneous subplots. But the central relationships of it are really well done. And yeah, it was it was a nice coming of age movie. And it was good to see Alice. I remember liking Saving Face and she just kind of disappeared. I think she had trouble getting another movie off the ground, but hopefully thanks to Netflix, she'll be able to make another movie sooner. And uh, I look forward to that. Yeah. I think she's already working on something. And um, yeah, I think I said XXXY, but I meant Saving Face there. Um, but uh, I like the subplots. I think they all came together. I have not seen this. Uh, I actually, I missed it when it came out and I've just recently seen a lot of people talking about it. Um, so maybe I'll have to check it out. 
You know, the great thing about Netflix, Dave, is that if you miss this movie in the theater, you wouldn't have been able to catch up with it in the theater, but it's just on Netflix. You could go watch it right now. We can come back and get the rest of this <laughs> podcast done after you check it out if you want. I sense a theme with this episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so number seven for Josh. Well, as I alluded to, my number seven is yes. Bad Education. Um, and like Dave, I really like Corey Finley. I had Thoroughbreds as my number one movie of the year in, I think it was 2018 or 17, whenever that was. Um, mm. And this is a very different movie. And it's one that he didn't write as opposed to Thoroughbreds, which he did. But I think it's also excellent. We mentioned Hugh Jackman, definitely his best performance. And, and Hugh Jackman is one of those actors that I, I feel like can kind of coast on charisma a lot of the time. And mm. this movie really shows that he has a depth of talent there beyond that. I mean, and he uses his charisma really well because the character here is a guy who also coasts on charisma, who gets away with so much because yeah. he's so beloved and friendly and well-liked and he can just embezzle millions of dollars without anyone paying attention. Um, so yeah, I love that. I feel like these ripped from the headlines movies, this could have easily been you know, what we think of in, in a negative terms as like a TV movie, you know, right. um, that could have been just kind of sensationalized. But it reminded me of something, I mean, with Alice and Janney involved, something like I, Tanya, for example, which takes this uh, scandal, uh, the real life scandal and does something clever with it and uses it to make a commentary beyond just like, hey, here's these crazy people who did some crazy stuff. So, uh, yeah, bad education. Uh, also, uh, Geraldine Viswanathan. Uh, gonna want to mention her as well, who plays the student journalist who breaks the scandal wide open. And, uh, she's a, another big rising star. She had a good year also with the broken hearts gallery, which was a fun little rom-com and talking of sort of coming of age stuff, Jason, I don't know if you saw that, but you might, uh, it might fit in your, uh, in that genre. I'll have to check that one out. Cause she's very good in blockers also. Um, yes, I, uh, as, as you both know, it's on my list, even higher than you two have. All it. right. And, uh, right. I just want to say Hugh Jackman, how about, it's not like the first time he's ever been good. I mean, Logan's awesome guys. So, but yeah, but this is a very excellent performance in a different way than we normally see him. Yeah. I wouldn't right. say it's the first time that he's been good, but yeah, I think it, it shows just a lot more depth, even though Logan is good. And I, you like that a lot more than I do, but Logan is just sort of like an expansion of that character that he'd already played so many times. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas this feels like something different. For sure. Well, uh, I'll go to my number seven, and that is the 40-year-old version on Netflix. Uh, no, not, not blocking Netflix from my list, guys. Uh, written, directed, and starring uh, Rada Blank. It's her debut feature. It's about a 40-year-old black woman who is a playwright working as a teacher who's desperate to like really make a name for herself and ends up reinventing herself as a rapper. And on paper, this movie just sounded awful to me, but I knew some people who really loved it, and it just won me over immediately. Uh, even all the hip-hop stuff works really well. Uh, she's a great rapper on top of everything. And uh, it's just a really funny and sweet story. And uh, it, even though it goes where you expect it to go, it just still feels fresh and exciting the whole time, uh, despite kind of being something that you, you feel like story-wise you've seen before. You just haven't quite seen it like this before. Josh, let me jump in because this is also on my list in a higher spot. So I'll talk about it a little later. But I do want to say one thing. Um, a, you know, when we talk about her, because she starred, wrote, and directed it. And, uh, you know, 
uh, Spike Lee had a great year this year between American Utopia and the Five Bloods, and it seems like he's in a real renaissance period of uh, his filmmaking right now. And uh, this has imprints of uh, you know classic Spike Lee all over it, and really, really sure. works well. Um, I'll talk more about it later. As I said, it's higher on my list, but uh, yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, well, and she worked as a writer on the She's Got to Have It TV series, so yeah. certainly... You know, even though Spike Lee isn't a producer or anything here, you can imagine that he's maybe had a chance to mentor her in some capacity. And I like this one, too. It's not on my list, but I thought it was fun. And she's certainly a a major talent. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see because this is obviously a very personal film that is about essentially about her life and a lot of her actual experiences. Um, What what she kind of where she goes from here, but uh, Mm -hmm. I will like it. And Dave, as a comedy rapper, I don't know why you would have been wary of watching this movie because I mean, this is, this seems like exactly in your wheelhouse, a a, a comedy rapper who's uh, talking about non-rap seeming topics. Like, Uh, come on. Yeah, I know. I'm a comedy rapper who doesn't like other comedy rappers. Let's put it that way. Yeah, but (laughs) she's a self-hating comedy rapper. She's got a great rap name too because her real name is Rada Blank and she's Rada Miss Prime. Come on, man. Yeah, that rules. She's just on it. Yeah, I'm so excited to see uh, where she goes next. And, um, you know, we, uh, Lena Waite produced this one too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Another great talent. Yep. All right, so we're on to number six. Jason, what do you got? Number six, Dave. You know, I don't like to give Josh credit, but I got to give him credit again. Um, One thing I love, Dave, is uh, these kind of B grindhouse movies when they're done right, you know, where the kills are all awesome and the plot is just enough to keep you going, like from the next grisly, horrible action to the next. And you're, you're really rooting for a good guy and really rooting for these bad guys to get it in the most horrible way. And uh, the best version of that movie this year is Becky, uh, a film about a 13 year old girl who's got a lot of anger issues. And rightfully so. Uh, her mother has recently died and her father is uh, going to get remarried. And her father is played by Joel McHale, who uh, doesn't ham it up for once. So that's nice. Um, And um, it's Lulu Wilson, who is kind of a young breakout star. And they go to the lake house for the weekend that they all used to spend time with. And Joel McHale doesn't tell her that he's bringing his or he's invited his girlfriend and his girlfriend's kid up. And then they discover that they're going to get married. And so Becky has all this anger built up and she goes to hide in her clubhouse. And while she does that, neo-Nazi escape prisoner. Kevin James and his gang of uh, Nazis come to the house to collect uh, a key for some reason we don't really ever find out, except that it's going to lead to some white supremacy revolution. And uh, they they take the family hostage, but they don't know about young Becky. And uh, Becky and all of her rage takes care of this gang in some of the best kills in recent memory. It's an hour and a half. And, you know, we're talking about all these, like, very, you know, kind of in a, a lot of ways, erudite films. This one is just pure B-movie greatness to me. Uh, I love this film. Uh, I want to shout out the uh, the filmmakers real fast. Uh, Jonathan Malloyd and uh, Carrie Murdian. Don't really know them. And then the screenplay, Nick Morris, Lane Sky, and Ruckus Sky. So there's that. Uh, I really like this movie. It's super fun. One location. 
uh, doesn't uh, there's no fat on it. You're just getting the the murders and the kills, and it's great. This was on my end of the year list, and I, I haven't gotten to it yet. But I think it's gonna probably be the next movie I watch because it sounds great. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it so much. I mean, I'm and I'm glad I brought it to your attention. I I enjoyed it, but not nearly as much as you did. Um, but it is a fun movie, and Lulu Wilson certainly uh, carries it. As she will be a breakout star. I think she was on uh, The Haunting of Hill House and maybe on the other haunting show, too, that came out this year. I'm not sure. But she certainly has a bright future ahead of her. And uh, yeah, Kevin James playing against type as that big neo-Nazi. I think it works well. Um, I don't know how many more uh, evil roles Kevin James, if he's going to pursue that. But <laughs> well, he can do it. Well, let's say this about Kevin James. He's trying to expand what he's known for. And he doesn't seem to be like being stuck as like i'm still you know late 30s early 40s leading man he's he's doing that alec baldwin thing where he's reinventing himself and um i think he's off to a good start yeah i i think if he wants to do more of that this this shows that he would be able to do it and i love how gory this movie yes is. like it is gruesome as hell yeah like Ooh, I'm, it I'm takes excited a, it takes a little bit <laughs> but once the violence comes it's Man, it's as gory as any like nasty horror. Yeah, movie. Josh, you would like I'm saying all those kills are really fun, you know? Um I know yeah. we've talked about movies like on Awesome Movie Year where like the kills are off screen, but like these are all like um you know, they kind of even foreshadow them on screen and like almost all of them live up to what they're supposed to be as far as kills. It also has a dude punching a dog in the face. So, um, which I'm not thrilled about, but like, I, uh, I, I respect anyone who's going to go to that level. So yeah, it's a fun movie. <laughs> definitely. Oh man. What do you got for your number six, Josh? Well, my number six pick is a movie that is not fun at all in any way. <laughs> and that is Kitty Green's The Assistant, which is surely one of the most depressing movies of the year. And mm -hmm. which I saw in one of those circumstances, like Jason was just describing, as if he had seen driveways that way, where I went to the theater on a weekday. Maybe it wasn't in the middle of the day. It might have been in the early evening. But um, this was back, uh, you know, in the earlier part of the year. I got to see a movie in a theater that still was happening in 2020. Um, and it was a it was it was the right way to see it because it's a hard movie to watch. And I feel like this is a movie that if you're sitting at home and you can pause it and take a break, you will because it's so uncomfortable. But Julia Garner, who's gotten a ton of attention for all of her work on Ozark. She is really, really good as the main character, the assistant here who works at this unnamed film production company that's obviously meant to be Miramax. And it's a reflection of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. But it's not just, I think when this movie was announced, people thought, oh, this is a Harvey Weinstein movie. And that I think is a very limited kind of like current eventsy way to think of it. It easily represents so many, unfortunately, so many workplaces that are run by these domineering men who think they can just get away with anything that they want and do. And they're right about it for the most part. Uh, we never see this boss on screen. We hear his voice briefly, but he's never seen and he's just sort of this ominous presence. And so much of this movie is just the mundane tasks that aren't necessarily like horrible harassment, but just the dehumanizing process of having this super low level job and having to be there before it's even light and stay all the way until late at night to do these menial tasks for people. And then on top of that, uh, be demeaned uh, as a woman. And there's a great scene and we're, I know we're talking about the moments and I tried to, I, I pick moments that aren't from my main list, but the scene in this movie 
of the main character attempting to report to HR about all the sexual harassment and the realization that she talks about this and talks to this incredibly smarmy HR rep played by Matthew McFadden, that not only does he not care, but he is well aware of all of this. And he is, in fact, the number one enabler of it is by far the best scene in any movie that I saw this year and is so uncomfortable and just so well acted by both of them. So, yeah, it's a tough movie to watch, but I and a lot of people did see it. But I hope uh, that description won't turn other people away. It is a hard movie to watch. That scene is definitely um, the hardest because um, up top of all the things you said, like it's clear that as an HR rep, he's given this spiel before to other women who have come in to try to report it. Right. Like this is very rehearsed for him. And um, it's it's hard to watch. Uh, I liked it. I didn't like it as much as you. But and maybe because it is so hard to watch. But um yeah, it's a it's a good movie, but um, get ready. It's you're not going to be comfortable. Like as you said, Josh, from the first scene where like she has to get in so early, and it's like, you know, why, why, why does she have to do that? You know, it's all it's hard, man. It's a hard movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot to it. That it's a great movie, and all the things you guys are just saying. And I, I really think one of the best things about it is that it's not just a Harvey Weinstein movie that it really could be a stand in for any kind of workplace situation that is, uh, just terrible to work through. And we should, we should say that like, yeah, uh, it's definitely that male domineering thing, but there are other female characters in there who, um, they're kind of in the gray area, not that they're um, enabling, but they, maybe it's that they just don't have any power and they have just come to uh, expect that, that they have to put up with this. It's, it's hard. It's a lot of like, you have to really think about what you're watching and like in that regard. Yeah. It's that whole culture of perpetuating this uh, behavior that is just, it's, it's, it's so difficult to do anything about. And ultimately, Jane, the main character, ends up kind of subsumed by it, which is one of the other ways that it's a super depressing movie. Um, But I agree, Dave, I think if it had been more specifically about Harvey Weinstein, it wouldn't have had the same kind of resonance that it did. Right, right. Well, I'll go on to my number six, uh, which is The Vast of Night from Andrew Patterson, which was, I think, like my biggest surprise movie of the year. And I think I might have said that back on our midway of the year uh, top 10 as well. But it just kind of felt like it came out of nowhere, this uh, first time director. And it just it feels like this kind of classic Twilight Zone homage. And uh, it's this alien invasion story kind of told through uh, the point of view of these two young uh, radio operators. And there's just this like tension where you're just kind of hanging on every word of these just long drawn out scenes. Uh, the dialogue almost reminds me a little bit of like a Tarantino movie in a way, in that you're you're just you're just really hanging on everything that's happening, even though there's not. Uh, you never get to that like big explosion of violence or sci-fi in this case. Uh, but it's just those, those long dialogue driven shots and, uh, the mystery of it all of what exactly is going to happen. And it's just really, uh, it's really interesting the way that this filmmaker on such a small budget was able to create so much out of so little. And, you know, it's really exciting for a fresh new filmmaker. And, and that's a theme this year. Cause we're getting a lot of, 
new filmmakers or second time filmmakers on this list. Right. And, um, yeah. this is a good movie. He does a great job of, uh, capturing tone and place. You know, it feels like some 1950s Midwestern town kind of reminded me of something that like Brit Marling might put out in that, like you're leading to a story. And right when you think you're getting to that huge part where you want to see the fallout, like that's kind of the end which is what she does a lot, but it works really well. I didn't get any Tarantino from it, um, but I liked it. And there's this one, I mean, it's a series of shots put together as one shot that like swoops through the whole town while the main character Mm -hmm. is like racing to, you know, alert someone. It's good. It's a good film found on Amazon prime, not in the movie theaters. Yes, sir. although it did yes, get a, a drive-in movie theater release perfect um, idea which is the perfect yes. place for it yeah yeah i liked it too i think weirdly in the opposite of dave i had high anticipation for this movie because it had played at festivals and it built this buzz and it sounded like the kind of thing that i would love and i was really looking forward to it and i felt like i was a little let down in part because of what jason is describing that this movie feels like it's like 99% build up and then it ends um which i appreciate the sort of subversion of expectations but it it felt a little hollow to me but yeah the filmmaking is is really impressive and the performances and the way it, it uses all that dialogue it almost feels like it could be a radio play or a a, a sure. narrative podcast or something but but the visuals are still good too um so yeah it's a good one Right on. Well, uh, Jason, number five. Number five, we've talked about already. It's a film called Palm Springs, uh, directed by Max Barkabow, right? Uh, Barbacow, his first time out, Andy Ciara wrote it, played at Sundance, sold for a ton of money to Hulu. Um, and it's uh, a great, uh, you know, kind of rom-com, but less on the com and more on that kind of like... Um, real feeling that um, these two go through every day and everything. Uh, The time loop is super popular right now. Also, it really does a good job of kind of setting the scene in Palm Springs. Um, I I think it's time for someone to make a movie about a character trying to get into a time loop as opposed to getting out of a time loop. But uh, yeah, I think much, much has been said, much has been hyped about it. It's all worth it. Watch the movie. Agreed. Only other thing I have to say is I was kind of expecting that to be your number one, Jason. So I'm really interested to see uh, what else you got oh, up there. Throwing some curveballs there. Oh, you yeah. know. <laughs> Josh, what do you got for your number five? Uh, well, my number five is a movie that I think may be on Jason's list uh, higher up or maybe not. But I know it's a movie that we both liked. And he was talking about the half of it with these uh, teen coming of age stories that I think there have been a lot of good ones this year. And this was my favorite of them is a movie called Banana Split with uh, Hannah Marks and Liana Liberato. Hannah Marks also co-wrote it. And certainly another one of these rising stars. I think she has a directorial debut still to come that she's been working on, but she's been a supporting actor in various things and uh, and co-wrote this movie. But it's just a delightful movie about teen girl friendship. And the hook here, the sort of high concept is that these two girls become friends Uh, via their sort of shared relationship with this same dude. And one of them is his current girlfriend and one of them is his ex. And they have this dynamic that you'd think they'd be at each other's throats. And that's what you expect from these kinds of teen movies. But it turns out that they just get along so well and, and even far better than they get along with the guy that should potentially be coming between them. And it's about the sort of enduring power of those 
teenage friendships that that transcend even a teenage romance and you imagine that maybe this guy will fade into the background but these two women will be friends for the rest of their lives and it's also just it's funny and it's joyful and it just makes you feel good it's the opposite of the assistant you could come out of this and thinking <laughs> life is life is nice and yay for friends and uh this was a movie that uh, was not on my radar at all. It actually took a long time to get distributed. It started playing at film festivals in 2018. And I don't know why no one wanted to pick it up because it's a very crowd-pleasing kind of film. But I discovered it only because I included it in one of these columns that I do on kind of obscure VOD releases. And and most of the stuff that I write about in those columns is very bad. Um, so it was a pleasant <laughs> surprise to me. And I was glad that I got to share it with Jason and hopefully more people as well. It's actually on Netflix now. It wasn't initially, but it is now. So hopefully that'll allow it to reach uh, a wider audience. Yeah, we did a piecing it together on it. And I love this movie. And it is my favorite uh, coming of age story of the year. So um yeah, it'll be up there. Another first-time director, though, Josh, huh? Yeah, yep. I believe so. Yeah. I do hope that more people watch it now that it's uh, on Netflix, because, yeah, it's great. Oh, you Absolutely. hope more people watch Netflix, do you, Dave? <laughs> if that's where they got to watch this movie, then yes. Absolutely. All right. I will go to my number five, and uh, spoiler alert for my top five, but the only movie I got to see in a theater uh, that's on my list. So, um Number five is Gretel and Hansel from Oz Perkins. Uh, yeah, this is a, I, it just feels like a, like a perfect, unique kind of movie. They, like, it's just, it's so beautiful to look at. The score is just absolutely fantastic. The cinematography is amazing. It's, you know, really darkly twisted take on this, you know, of course, Hansel and Gretel story. And the performances are great. Uh, th there's just so much all firing on all cylinders here. So much great going on on screen. And uh, it, it really makes the most of the screen as well. Uh, like I, I just mentioned the cinematography, but it really just looks so good. Everything happening is just so creative and interesting. And uh, it really just makes it rise above. And I know that there's a, a lot of people who really, you know, weren't in for the whole slow burn of it all. But uh but I, I just think it's a really rewarding movie if you if you stick with it because there's so much cool happening and uh, uh, the actress who plays the witch, Josh, I didn't uh, write her name down. Oh, Al Alice Kriege, who yeah, uh, Alice people Kriege may remember so as the Borg Queen from Star right. Trek. Right. Yeah, she's so good. What a fun performance. <laughs> Yeah, I love this movie, and I'm really happy to, ha to hear that it's on your list because I didn't. It, it seems like a movie that was completely forgotten. Um, it came out it the like early January of 2019. Yeah. And um, I also saw it in a theater and uh, I will have it on my list uh, even higher. All right. Awesome. What about you, Jason? Do you ever see it? No. Uh, again, uh, I've heard all good things about it. Straight horror. Uh, I had it on a list of things to watch, but um, didn't want to pee my pantsies. It's it's not not that it, scary. Yeah, it's really more atmospheric. It's not like the Dark and the Wicked, where it's really trying to scare you. It's I I still I'm not entirely sure that it would be Jason's thing, but it's not like a movie that's full of scares. It's more like that feeling of uh, dread and weirdness than than right. scares. All right, all right. Absolutely. It's on uh, epics right now, so. There you yeah, go. Yeah. No one, no one awesome. has. That's why no one's seen it because no one has it. <laughs> yeah, come on. Right. <laughs> All right, Jason, what do you got? Number four. All right, uh, number four for me. Um, a very different type of coming of age story. It's never, rarely, sometimes, always. 
uh, Eliza Hitman, um, who did Beach Rats. Uh, I've not seen her other films, but uh, this is starring Sydney Flanagan, who is again going to be one of these breakouts. But this is a different kind of breakout star. This is in the same way that if you saw like the Florida Project and the way, uh, what's the director's name? Sean Baker, right? He was casting people mm-hmm. just off of like Instagram and stuff. That's kind of what happened here where Hitman uh, found um, Sydney on uh, online and she's a singer-songwriter and they talk for years about doing something. Um, and it turns out she's awesome, Sydney Flanagan. It's about a young woman who lives in a religious Pennsylvania town, old-fashioned morals, um, not really a way out of that town either. And um, she gets pregnant and she wants to have an abortion, but there's no option for her in the town. And she and her best friend travel to New York to, um, you know, get the procedure done. And um, they run into many obstacles along the way. And also it's their first time in New York City. And you could tell like they're out of their element and um, they're lucky a lot of worse things don't happen to them. Very affecting and effective film. Yeah, it was it was good. It's not on my list. And I mean, this is probably, if not the most acclaimed movie of the year, like right up there. And so I was certainly eager to watch it. And uh, I think it's one of those things that there's so much hype that it's never going to quite live up to it. But it's very good. And you're right, those performances. Talia Ryder is the other actress who plays the, the cousin who goes along with her. Who is is weirdly like you're talking about the the, the sort of non actor discovery and Talia Ryder is like a I think she'd been on Broadway and she's gonna she's in the Steven Spielberg West Side Story but they both have a very naturalistic uh, feel to their performances uh, and there's there's what the one shot where the from the movie where it gets its title where it just she just holds the camera on Sidney Flanagan as she has to answer these questions in the um, in the uh, clinic about her sexual history and that is just a devastating yeah. Uh, oh, yeah moment absolutely there's a lot of these undertones where you're like like even with the father character you're like this character has suffered uh the sydney flanagan character has suffered some type of abuse that we're not let on to but you can tell it's there and has kind of um um informed all of her decisions that led her to this moment right yeah, no, really, really good movie. Uh, not on my list, but excellent. And like Josh said, I mean, I think this is probably the most raved about movie of the year overall. Well, especially now that I put it on the top 10, right, guys? That's yeah. right. I mean, this just really seals the deal. If <laughs> yeah, it wasn't sure quite does. the most acclaimed movie of the year, now it is. Slam now dunk. Is. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, Josh, number four. Uh, well, my number four pick is another movie that I got to see in a theater uh, it's The Invisible Man by Lee Winnell. And I think this is one of those movies, like, I liked it, but I, I did wonder slightly if I wouldn't have liked it as much if I had first watched it at home because it's this very tense horror movie um, that is a great thing to see in a big group of people who are all really into it. And you can sense the the sort of anticipation in the, in the audience for what's going to happen next when the shocking things happen or when there's suspenseful moments. Um, but I think... Either way, it's a very well-constructed film, uh, a twist on the sort of universal monster um, formula where the Invisible Man here is is essentially the villain, and he's this uh, abusive, 
uh, rich guy whose girlfriend, played by Elizabeth Moss, is trying to escape from him, and his invisibility is a way to continue to abuse and torment her even after she's escaped. And of course, Elizabeth Moss is an amazing actor. She's getting all this acclaim for Shirley this year, which I have not seen, but um, I have no doubt she's amazing there. But she's really good here as well. Uh, and really sells what could be an incredibly silly premise of this character mm -hmm. being so deathly afraid of what looks like nothing. Um, and and Winnell too sells it so well where he, he immerses you in this world so effectively that he can just kind of pan the camera over to a corner of the room that is empty and you're just scared as hell because you know what's right. gonna what's there, um, and it's a great way to save on your budget too. But sure. um, yeah, I, this is a movie that I didn't necessarily anticipate that much. I thought his first or his previous movie as a director, Upgrade, which a lot of people thought liked, I thought was incredibly stupid. Um, but this movie is is it's straight faced. It's not campy, but it's done really well. So I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, it didn't make my list. Uh, it was on my list at the midway point, but as you know, the year continued to move on to me, I, I think the thing you were talking about there about seeing this with a crowd in a theater, I mean, really, really hits home for me there, you know, because I don't picture myself watching this again at home. You know, it's not, it's not a movie I feel like would, would kind of stay as as exciting and as fresh in a home viewing i just don't think it could really hold up that way so that's why it dropped off my top 10 but it's still very well made and yeah you know elizabeth moss is great i did watch it at home is that a surprise it's a horror movie i watched at home guys yeah were you scared uh it was scared the scares were good and it was like man maybe i should have watched this during the day um it took me a few times to get through it which is one of those things like you're saying if you're in a theater you know you just Go, but um, I, I did get uh, fatigued by it where it was like I couldn't understand some of the decisions the characters were making. And then also it was like, how many times do I have to see someone fight air? Um, and uh, <laughs> so it was fine. I could see why you guys liked it so much. Meh. Yeah, if I watched it at home again, maybe I wouldn't like it as much. I, I think I would still like it. Um, and I think the the parts of characters fighting air was something that I felt like it worked. It could be really ridiculous, but to me, it it, it got me uh, invested in the world enough that that stuff worked for me. Where it lost me was like when the sister gets the letter from her and we've established this closeness between these sisters. And then, you know, she gets a fake letter from her saying like, I hate you. I don't want anything to do with you. And it's like, where is this coming from? It's not something that was believable. Um, that the sister would believe that, you know, Elizabeth Moss's character would send it to her. So that's kind of where it took me out of it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's an emotionally fragile character and I feel like it's, and, and she's been gaslit the entire time and she's on edge. So I feel like it's not that far fetched to believe that she might do something extreme that way. But yeah, I mean, I think overall, this is a movie that if you can't buy into the world that it's created, then it will not work for you. Yeah. You're an emotionally fragile character. <laughs> So true. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, my number four is a movie I did not get to see in theaters, but I hope to once I'm vaccinated and it opens in wide release. Uh, that is Chloe Zha's Nomadland, uh, which is uh, just an absolutely beautiful movie and is about so many things. I mean, it's about life in America after the Great Recession. It's about life as a nomad living out of a van or, or an RV, life as a houseless person, uh, a character study of Francis McDormand's character who is just 
you know, it's Frances McDormand. It's just, it's so enjoyable to just spend the time that the movie spends with her. Uh, and all the other characters are so enjoyable to spend time with. Um, and uh, the score is amazing. Cinematography is, is just absolutely gorgeous. And, uh, I, you know, one other note is uh, Gina and I have discussed many times uh, later in life, uh, living, living the, uh, the life in an RV driving around the oh, country. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so it's a nice little uh, preview, at least the, the nicer parts of the movie. Yeah, I was <laughs> going to say, after seeing, this, after seeing this movie, do you still want to do that? <laughs> I, I'm hoping it's by choice. Let's put it that way. <laughs> what a what a glimpse into your future that we got there, Dave. So that's right. Well, I should hopefully be able to still produce awesome movie or from the road. <laughs> that's good. That's important. That's that's what we care about, yeah. obviously. Yeah. So um. yeah, I I thought it was fine. I I, I was I was <laughs> underwhelmed, but uh, you know, I'm I'm apparently the only one, and uh, I love Frances McDormand, but I felt like Frances McDormand's presence in this movie was obtrusive. That I would have hmm. rather just seen a straight documentary about these real people. And I spent too much time wondering what details were real. Because they're all, other than her and David Strathairn's character, people essentially playing themselves. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It uh it didn't it didn't it didn't do it for me, but uh that's I think I'm the only person. Uh I didn't see yeah. it because uh, the Nevada Film Critics Society does not deem me worthy. <laughs> those guys uh <laughs> all right uh jason what's your number three? number three talked about uh hey this is the first movie to make all three of our lists bad education Corey finley written by mike mikowski let's give him a little love uh the emmy winner for outstanding television movie um this came out kind of when lockdown was really first starting and uh, this was one of the first movies that i think i could really look forward to as like a release date in my house you know so love the look Corey finley you mentioned josh uh thoroughbreds um you know which uh we all like and we're excited to see what what he does next and um yeah just a, a really good movie and um you know um administrators who embezzle money are heroes yes um okay wait was that not the well, message I, oh never mind uh <laughs> yeah no i think yeah. you're right though to give credit to that that screenwriter mike mikowski because he he helps it feel authentic he went to that high school not at the time but just a few years later and so he's very familiar with that area and with the culture there so it feels real i think that's a big reason why and i and you know what i was just joking about the embezzlement but the characters who do the embezzling have to justify why they did it and I think Mikowski as a writer and uh, obviously through the performances, you get those um, those valid justifications based on those points of view. Uh, last person I want to shout out during this movie, another man who's really having an excellent career transformation and has become quite a good dramatic actor, Ray Romano in this one. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. Great in it. Yeah, he's, uh, he's really stepped up. And, uh, you know, since... Uh, Men of a Certain Age, underrated TV show where he first kind of showed that range. Hey, Robert. <laughs> that, was that was the extent of the... Uh, it was, was sort of sort of Kermit the Frog a little, He's but a little it was close. Here. Yeah, I'm the favorite son. <laughs> Everybody loves me. Go on. Hey, Ray Romano, would you uh, ask Josh what his number three is? Hey, Josh, what do you have as third on your list? Uh, it's, it's, it's improving as it goes on. Yeah, that was that was quite good there. Uh, so, <laughs> in a, a 
stark transition. My number three pick is Gretel, Gretel and Hansel, which Dave awesome. already brought up, which is not funny at all and does not feature Ray Romano. Although that would have been an interesting choice if it had. But if it did, it would um, sound like this. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. Uh, but Al- Alice Kriege, who Dave mentioned, who plays the witch in this movie and who who works steadily, but I feel like has been underrated and who, who actually who worked with Britt Marling. Jason mentioned she was on the OA, um, but I still always remember her for, as the Borg queen from Star Trek. Um, she is so creepy as the witch in this movie. And Sophia Lillis, who plays Gretel and is just done amazing things over the last few years, um, is really, really good. And you you think like, the Gretel, the Hansel and Gretel story, like who needs to see a movie about that? And right. the way that Oz Perkins tells that familiar story, but does it in, it changes it up enough and brings in these uh, themes of coming of age, of uh, women's place in society, and just also all the atmosphere of it, the score that Dave mentioned, the production design, the cinematography. This is a movie that feels it, it like it comes from another planet in a really good way. So um I saw it in a theater and uh, unlike The Invisible Man, it was not packed at all. Um, (laughs) But um, I'm I'm really glad, again, that Dave had it on his list, too, because I feel like this is a movie that's been just entirely forgotten. And it's unfortunate that it has. I think if it had come out weirdly, if it had not come out in theaters, if it had come out like a few months later, like exclusively to Hulu or something like that it would have gotten a bigger audience because that was when people were just so hungry for any of these horror movies. Um, and it's actually, it's about to be on Amazon prime in January. So I hope that people will uh, give it a chance there. Yeah, hopefully. Well, you just gutted Dave by telling him it would have done better had it not been released in theaters. No, I mean, I'm glad I saw it in a theater and it's definitely a, a good movie to see in theaters, but I think weirdly just the way that the audience, especially for horror has been this year, I think the streaming has been the place for that. Yeah, there, there's like, uh, if you were to do like a Venn diagram of horror fans and people who don't want to go to the theater, uh, it overlaps quite a bit, I think. Yes, that's true. Also on on that list, people who eat ho-hos in their underwear. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I mean, that sounds like an enjoyable activity, so I don't know. Yeah, what, uh... maybe I'll get into horror movies now that I know I can eat ho-hos <laughs> in my underwear. Sure. So uh, my number three is a movie called I'm Thinking of Ending Things from Charlie Kaufman, uh, a movie I've been waiting for for many years. And of course, I got to give credit where credit is due to Netflix for finally giving Charlie Kaufman some money to make another movie after like a decade. It's fucking ridiculous that he can't get a movie made in Hollywood. But uh, that's another story. Uh, it's just a, a, a great, weird write what you would want from Charlie Kaufman after all these years. I It's certainly not my favorite Charlie Kaufman movie. Maybe after repeated viewings, I, I'll have to see where it like kind of lands on that list. Uh, but for now, I loved it. Uh, I think Jesse Buckley, fantastic. Jesse Plemons is great. Uh, Tony Collette and David Thewlis, maybe even better than the two leads. They're just so fun. It, it's, a, it's about this guy who brings uh, his new girlfriend to his parents to meet them. Uh, to their parents' house and things just kind of get weird and weird and weird and it's, you know, like many Charlie Kaufman movies it's it's something that's open to interpretation there's uh, wildly different reads that you can get on the movie from scene to scene or from just the overall entirety of the whole thing and it's also beautifully shot uh, great score, there's just so much going for it uh, but at the same time it is a Charlie Kaufman movie and I know a lot of people think 
Charlie Kaufman's, you know, so far up his own ass, this one especially, uh, that it's really not for them. So that's fine. But I loved it. Yeah, I think there's some Charlie Kaufman stuff. I think I prefer him when he's not the director. And there's a sort Mm. of another voice in there and another vision that can can, uh, sort of mitigate that being up his own ass feel. And that's definitely, (laughs) definitely how I felt about this movie, especially the like third act of it, which just goes completely into self-referential uh, nonsense. But Dave, I'm sort of surprised that this wasn't your number one through 10 pick because <laughs> right. Dave, That's a you're good, uh, such a Charlie Kaufman fanboy. Or maybe that you somehow put Charlie Kaufman's novel on uh, on this list somewhere. I, I was going to mention that actually. Uh, that was another thing that added to this year, just being just, it was a fucking weird and terrible year overall, but great for being a Charlie Kaufman. Well, fan, Josh, the way. novel didn't get a theatrical release, so Dave was pretty disappointed. That's true. God it was, damn it. Um, it was only on Netflix. You know, I agree with everything Josh said. I just, uh, I get it, Dave. I get it why you liked it. I watched it. It didn't. Uh, compute for me but i know why it does for a lot of people and uh i'm glad you enjoyed it dave there you go that's that's what it is at least i got my charlie kaufman movie and supposedly he has a whole bunch of projects in the works now but uh he's had projects in the works forever that never got finished making well like we uh, said we like him it's just it seems like when someone can distill that voice it it really works out better because like josh said that third act was like watch me eat cake You know, just it was just all there for him. So, you know. I, I would watch Charlie Kaufman eat cake. While well, you were uh, eating ho-hos in your underwear. Uh, that's that's right. That's right. So, number two, Jason. Number two, Josh has it on his list. My favorite coming-of-age story. One that, Dave, I pushed you hard for, for a, uh, piecing it together. And we did it, and it was good. And that's Banana Split, the smartest uh, coming-of-age story of uh, two female friends in the last few years, if you catch my drift, that didn't get all the hype of another one that was supposed to be super bad. Um, but I'm really glad this came out because I wanted something like that, a female super bad. And this does have that great party scene. Uh, and this does have all the camaraderie you want between the two best friends. And um, it has so many good elements of all the relationships the ex and the boyfriend, the current girlfriend and the boyfriend and the two lead girls. And, uh, yeah, just, um, just great. Just, um, just great. We, uh, we had said another first time director, uh, that's Benjamin Kalsuki, Josh. And, um, uh, Hannah Marks is a star on the rise. Who knows about, uh, Lena Liberato. Maybe she's got a lot more in her and Dylan Sprouse. We know, uh, He's going to be that hunky dude for a while. So a uh, funny, funny movie and everything works. Yeah. Liana Liberato has done a lot of kind of dumb teen TV. She was on this terrible Hulu horror show called Light as a Feather. But I feel like she could, uh, you know, break out into to some higher quality stuff, hopefully. Yeah. Hannah Marks, um, we was in that movie uh, with Gillian Jacobs this year that uh, I didn't love. I'm going home. Uh, I used to go here. I, I used to I used to go yeah. here. Yeah. She's very good in that too. Yeah, I like that movie a lot and more than you did. Um and Hannah Marks is good in it, although she doesn't have much of a, a large part. You're right. She makes but... the most of what she's given. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great movie. And I really do hope more people uh see it now that it's gonna be on a streaming thing. But Josh, what do you got for number two? So my number two pick is is also sort of a coming of age movie. It is another teen movie. It is Tyresha Poe's Sella and the Spades, 
which just blew me away. And this is also a movie that I feel like has been kind of forgotten that was heavily hyped. It was big at festivals. And when it was released on Amazon earlier this year, it was a big deal and was very well reviewed. Um, but I haven't seen it on almost any lists this year, which I think is a shame because it's just such a distinctive and it's another, this is a debut feature from Tyree Chapeau. And it's just so confident. Um, you can sense that voice in it so distinctively. Um, and it's this mix of a kind of crime story um, with this uh, up upscale prep school teen story where the climax is all about the prom. And yet it's done in a way as if it's the Godfather with these different factions in the school and controlling the sort of underground economy of drugs and cheating and all of the stuff that you have at this upscale prep school. Um, and the main faction led by Sela, played by Lovey Simone, who just gives this amazing breakout performance. And I hope there will be more for her on the horizon and uh, she won't fade into the background. I was disappointed to watch the the craft uh, sort of reboot thing where she has a supporting role as one of the witches and barely is given anything to do. So hopefully mm -hmm. someone will make use of her talents. But I just think everything about the, the look of it, the production design, the cinematography, uh, the stylized dialogue. I mean, we talked about like in The Vast of Night, which has this really stylized dialogue. And that has uh, this has those aspects as well. Um, all of these really fantastic performances. So I just loved it. And I think it's a shame if people have forgotten about it already. So. Uh, Jave, I'll jump in. Uh, sure. Lovey, what's her name, Josh? Lo Lovey Simone. Lovey Simone, great. And another young female star on the rise. Um, as far as the directing and the voice being distinctive, you're right, is distinctively Ryan Johnson's voice from Brick. <laughs> uh, boom! What a zinger. I nailed you in your face, everyone. Um, but no, that was the, this was the problem for me is that. Um, you know, you want to talk about, um, unnecessary subplots and things that didn't add up. And, um, you know, right from the beginning, we're hearing about these five factions, but the whole movie is only about two factions. So why do I even care about the other three? I don't really need to know about them in the beginning. If you want to like, you know, bring them up as you travel through them, that's fine. But it kind of lost me. Um, I don't think, I think it's all right, but I've seen better versions of this movie. Yeah. I mean, I think Brick is certainly an influence, but I think her voice is different from Ryan Johnson's. And just because she also combines that kind of hard boiled crime style with a, a, a teen drama doesn't mean that it's a, a copy of that. Um, I, I think the fact that the, the way, the look of it, which is very different from the look of Brick, um, and the way that she connects it with this, uh, with characters of color, I think is something that gives it a different perspective as well. And I like that you're right that it really just focuses on two of these factions and their rivalry, but it's part of the world building and and the the sort of unique uh, environment of this school to talk about all the different factions. So that didn't bother. Well, me. I that's what I'm saying. Like I'm with you on the world building, but I did, I think it was ineffective to put all of that up front because it gave you these kind of um, false expectations that never paid off. But I will agree with you. It is interesting um, that we get to see this kind of. Um, but you know, look, Rick Joseph Gordon-Levitt. But um, you know, um, he is not a person of color, Josh. So you're right. This was a different perspective in that regard. Well, it's not just that main character. I mean, I think the whole environment there, which is this upscale prep school that is populated by the kind of characters that you don't usually expect to see in a movie about that environment, I think gives it a different angle. Yeah, I guess it's just the follow through didn't didn't uh, 
connect for me. I like the I like the setup of that for sure, yeah. but it just didn't uh, deliver for me. All right. Yeah, I, I didn't love this movie uh, as we talked about on our episode, Josh. But like I also said on the episode, I did think you know it is absolutely so stylish and uh, great to look at, and I do think. She has an interesting voice. I'm very excited to see like what she does next. I hope, you know, she does get a chance to make something again. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, this movie again, it got a lot of hype and then it seemed to have kind of faded, so hopefully that won't uh, affect her opportunity to make something and, else. And you know, like, you know, a lot of these first-time filmmakers we see and we look back and you're like, "Oh, you could see, you know, the building blocks of putting something together that is more of a complete picture." So, yeah, I hope so too. Um just I uh sorry, buddy. Just this one, not for me. Yeah, no, that's okay. If we all if we all agreed, we just have one list, and it would be very boring. That's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So uh, I'll go with my number two, and that is "Sound of Metal" from Darius Martyr, uh, which starts out as a story about a drummer from an experimental heavy metal noise band who begins to lose his hearing and has to deal with the consequences of that, uh, and, and it does show that very beautifully is an incredible performance by Riz Ahmed. Uh, but it ends up becoming about so much more about, uh, this, this guy who has been able to like kind of get through anything in his life. He's, you know, kind of quote unquote beaten addiction in the past and everything else that his life has thrown at him. But now there's something that's coming his way that he simply cannot be. And he has to, uh, learn some kind of acceptance for 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 what's going on with them and learning how to live and how to how to be this new person that he's going to be and uh, to me this movie has such a parallel to everything going on in this like insane year of the fact that even after you know uh, a vaccine and everything there's no telling that we're going back to any kind of normalcy anytime soon or even ever and i think this movie captures that even though it was obviously made before uh any any of this happened it still is just such a perfect parallel to that uh that idea and uh you know aside from that though also back to the performances olivia cook who was uh, amazing in thoroughbreds is just fantastic in this and paul rassi is just maybe the best supporting performance this year, I think, is the Rehabilitation Center uh, counselor. Um, he's just just such a beautiful, like, very real-feeling performance. Yeah, I think I'm the only person who didn't like this movie. Uh, I think so. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, I want to see it. I didn't see it, Josh. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, that's okay. I just got to the end of the year and it's like, how many more serious movies can I watch in a row? You know, so, <laughs> right. um, but I will watch it. Arizamed, um, a star on the rise for sure. Yeah, I think Arizamed is talented, but I had forgotten uh, before watching this movie that this was, it was originally before Darius Martyr took it over. It was a Derek Cien France project that he'd been, it was like a sort of pet project that he'd been trying to make for a long time, and I think he actually made or shot a large portion of his version of it with different actors. And I don't know mm. if that exists anywhere. Um, but he's still credited as a co-writer uh, on this movie and a producer. And I, I, as I was watching it after like the first hour or so, I was like, oh my God, this is a Derek Sienfrans project who I, I just loathe everything that he does. And I think this is one of these movies where it's like, it's just misery upon misery with, from my perspective, nothing illuminating about it. And mm. I didn't hate it as much as uh, the other Derek C. France project this year, which was the HBO series, I Know This Much Is True, which is just, it's all of that misery and more for like eight <laughs> hours. 
Um, so this was better than that. But uh, yeah, this is just, it was not for me. And I love heavy metal. <laughs> well, and, and that's an interesting thing. It's very little of the movie is heavy metal. Right. So, no, I, that's yeah. true. I know. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just, uh, for whatever that's worth, you know, movies yeah. about heavy metal, I'm inclined to like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you ever seen a movie called Heavy Metal? I, I have indeed seen that movie. I think probably when I was like 13, but, uh, you know, it was exciting. Cool. That'll probably come up on Awesome Movie or one day. Yeah, that was a great story. So I can tell it again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jason, what do you got for your number one? Number one mentioned earlier in the podcast by Mr. David Rosen, the 40-year-old version. Nice. I was just, she's so awesome, Rada Blank. And she won the directing prize at uh, Sundance. I thought this was the most honest portrayal, maybe the most honest movie about yourself that you could make. She is not afraid to be honest about, you know, her sex life, about her downfall. She'll be the butt of the joke. But you root for her. She's a very good actress. I can't, I mean, I'd love to see her just act, you know, beyond, you know, in other people's projects too. But um, this is maybe the most original debut, uh, certainly of this year. And I think um, I'm so excited. Um, And like you said, Dave, it doesn't make sense. Like, oh, I used to be a a famous playwright and then I let it all slip away. And now at age age 40, I'm going to, get into the woke hip hop game, you know, and (laughs) she's got these cool set pieces where like the producer takes her to this like super underground all female rap battle. And, you know, she's got these, this class that she's trying to teach and she, you know, has to deal with the teenagers who uh, either love her, have a crush on her or think she's a loser. Sometimes they come to her show. We see what happens when she fails at a show. Um, You know, she's a self saboteur until she isn't. I just, uh, man, everything worked for me. I loved the chances she took in style and kind of in um, substance here. Like there are scenes that play more kind of montage-y. Um, I just, man, she just nailed this. Uh, so number one for me, the 40-year-old version. Awesome. Yeah, it's good. Th- it's uh, Thanks, buddy. Yeah. No, I mean, we, you know, we've said, but I think that one thing that you point out, it's like, it's very vulnerable. Like she doesn't, like let herself off the hook in any way. I mean, it's, that's gotta be tough to make a movie like that about your own life. And even if you can, uh, script it and make it funny just to like lay that all out there and, uh, you know, share it with people, that's a difficult thing to do. So you got to respect that as well. Yeah. I'll add, uh, one of my favorite lines of the year is when she says that she's going to do hip hop and her friend said, do what to it? (laughs) (laughs) That's really good. (laughs) Uh, all right. Uh, Josh, number one. Oh, so my number one is a movie that, uh, again, people don't seem to have really liked very much. It's, uh, it's not even fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but, and it's a movie that because of that, I almost didn't even watch. I got a screener for this movie the week that it came out and I was busy and I thought, oh, nobody, people aren't really into this movie. I probably don't need to bother seeing it. Um, but I'm so glad that I did because I loved it so much and it is Dreamland. Starring Margot Robbie uh, and Finn Cole as this depression era set crime drama uh, about a bank robber on the run played by Margot Robbie, who was part of a sort of Bonnie and Clyde-esque couple, uh, the uh, other half of which is uh, no longer around. 
And she hides out in this Texas farmhouse where this uh, teenage boy, uh, or maybe he's older than a teenager, he's uh, kind of, uh, you know, being expected to make something of himself now, although it's in the midst of the depression, so he doesn't have a lot of options. And uh, he befriends her and helps her and then falls in love with her and then is kind of taken under her spell to help her go on the run. And uh, it's all narrated by his younger sister, who's played by Darby Camp in uh, on the on-screen uh, scenes and is narrated by Lola Kirk in this very, very Terrence Malick way. And I can understand that you watch this movie and you think like, okay, this is Badlands. This is Days of Heaven. Like, do something new. But I think this is a better Terrence Malick movie than Terrence Malick has made in quite some time. And I think it also has its own style to it. It's also clearly very 70s influenced by stuff like Bonnie and Clyde. It's got great performances. Margot Robbie, who's always good. And she brings to life this character who could easily just be like this lust object for the main male character. But she's so much more than that. It's so stylish with the way that it uses uh, these sort of flashes to the imagination of this main character who thinks his father is living somewhere in Mexico because uh, he got this one letter and it's presented as if it's these kind of home movies. And it's just it just immerses you in this world, I think, in a way that just like captivated me from beginning to end. So I love it. And maybe I'm alone in it. And it's one of these movies I almost feel like reluctant to recommend because clearly a lot of people saw it and didn't think it was anything special. But uh, I hope if something about it intrigues people that they will give it a shot because I just think it's fantastic. So Dreamland is my number one. I saw it and didn't think it was anything special. Um, yeah, well, you you and many others. Yeah, it's fine. Um, it's interesting that you have that and the devil all the time as your bookends because they're very similar in some ways. And um, I'd say the devil all the time is a better version of it. You know, um, you know, different different settings, different time periods. But, you know, um, Margot Robbie is good, but yeah, didn't jump off as anything. I mean, I get your points. Maybe just that the character didn't have more to it that made it jump off for me. Um, it's fine. I think the Dust Bowl sequences are, um, you know, kind of those incoming dust storm tornadoes or those look really good. And, um, yeah, it's all right. I think I come in somewhere between the two of you. I, I very much liked it quite, quite a bit. Uh, I, I think it looks beautiful. I think the score is fantastic, but you know, other than that though, it, the story itself just kind of left me a little cold, but, um, but it's a good movie though. Definitely. All right. I'll take was it. Was anyone else, was anyone else waiting for the little sister to get Santa Claus involved to save the day? Was she in a Santa she's Claus? In the, she's the Christmas Chronicles girl. So. Oh, okay. Uh, That's, that, that was not, you know, it was low on my list of things to catch up with this year, the Christmas Chronicles too. So I missed it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, I will go to my number one, which was also my number one at the midway mark of the year. And I kind of wasn't sure if I was going to even include it at first, but 2020 has been such a weird year. And I said, screw it. No movie has made me laugh more this year than Bob Byington's Francis Ferguson. Uh, This is a, a very weird, uh, darkly funny, pitch black, dry comedy uh, about a woman uh, played by Kaylee Wellis who is kind of bored with her life and her marriage and her job as a substitute teacher and uh, basically decides to like kind of hit a do-over button in the form of having an affair with a student and throwing her life away. And there, there's no movie I've seen, at least recently, that just has 
like tuned in so much so well to like this contempt for everything <laughs> and for just thinking everything is kind of a joke and everything is ridiculous and everything is stupid and all through this character uh francis ferguson and i just think she is so much fun to watch even though she's reprehensible of course for what she does uh but it, it's like it's just so funny and the character is so interesting and uh just the fact that she's immediately arrested and <laughs> immediately goes to jail, immediately rehab after the fact, and just along the way is just so annoyed by any anyone and everything that comes in her path, uh, I just think is just so funny, and I love this movie. And I know, uh, I know the people who have seen it, uh, really it's a love or hate movie for sure. I, I definitely have seen some people who loved it and plenty of people hate it either for just thinking it's not that good or for being straight up offended by the, uh, conceit of the whole thing. But, uh, either way, I hope some people who maybe have an open mind for this kind of thing will, uh, check it out. Yeah. I watched it because of your enthusiastic recommendation and, yes. uh, yeah. I did not care for it. So I wasn't yeah. offended by it. I think if anything, I was offended by how poorly it uses its offensiveness. Like <laughs> it sets up the idea that it's going to be about this affair or whatever. And then that's a, a, almost an irrelevant aspect of the plot. Um, it is. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just found it unpleasant in not in like a clever or illuminating way and uh, very disjointed it just kind of skips from one thing to another without really delving into it. And uh, I definitely did not find it funny. But you know what? I have to respect because I guarantee you, Dave, that you were the only person who has that movie as their number one film of 2020. And and I have to respect that. So um, thank you. Let alone on their ten top 10 list. Right, <laughs> right. And so, you know, as, as, as someone who's who's ended up maybe not with something quite that obscure, but certainly... I'll often have things on my list that other people didn't care for or dismiss. Um, so I, I certainly uh, know where you're coming from on that and, uh, and give you credit for it. Right on. Jason, have you seen it? I haven't seen no. it. Uh, but uh, Dave, you, uh, you gave it a good sell there. Um, if anyone could sell a teacher having an affair with a student, Dave, it's you. <laughs> and uh, I'll Thank have you. to check out the film. <laughs> Oh, uh, that's great. <laughs> all right. So that's our top 10 list. Only crossover for all three of us was bad education, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, correct? Yeah, yeah but yeah. surprisingly more than I think I had, had anticipated. It just, yeah, there's a few, know, though. I think lists, yeah. so. we had a lot of themes of coming of age, of young filmmakers or first-time filmmakers, and a good amount of horror from you, too. I do love yeah. horror. So let's do our three favorite moments like we did the last couple of years. I'm just going to go uh, Jason first, uh, do all three back to back. Then we'll do Josh all three back to back and then me. Uh, Jason, what are your three favorite moments from movies this okay, year? Okay, number, well, well, in random order, the mating yeah. dance, the fertility dance in Borat, uh, subsequent movie <laughs> film, was number one. You want to talk about uh, nice. uncomfortable humor that could um, horrify people. Uh, Brilliant, and uh, when people thought this character had nothing left to give, he gave us one of the best and funniest and most poignant films of the year. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen 
easily make an argument he's the male star of the year between this and the uh, trial of the Chicago Seven. Uh, very funny Borat, yeah. and um, and overall revered this year. And that scene is definitely the fertility dance where the daughter kind of lifts her skirt and. We see that uh, uh, she has um, working bodily functions of sorts, you know. Uh, she is of age to uh, be fertile, let's say. Um, very, very uh, – I don't think they give enough credit for actually pulling off these stunts. Like, it's incredible the amount of dedication that they have to have both from a cast and crew standpoint. So that's number one for me, yeah. the fertility dance. Number two, you can pick your moment – Hamilton, is it a movie? Is it not a movie? Who cares? It's brilliant and the most enjoyable viewing experience I had this year. Um, if I wanted to put it on, it could have been number one, but I just put it on as a moment. Um, and number three, good year for foreign films. Uh, one of them was called The Whistlers, and it's this weird, I believe, Romanian crime drama that sends its main character to the Canary Islands where he has to learn a uh, language native to that uh, area of that land, which is just people whistling to each other. And the way they whistle is uh, in tones that kind of inflect um, what their sentences are. And the character learning the language, there's this scene where they're all on top of these beautiful cliffs and whistling to each other. Uh, very, very um, memorable. So those are my moments. Awesome. Yeah, I, I love that Borat got into this conversation. And uh, The Whistler is something that I'm still hoping to watch after your recommendation. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. So, uh, Josh, what do you got? Well, I was trying to, I wanted to pick things that weren't from movies on my main list, although I mentioned that scene in The Assistant, which I think is the best scene of any movie this year. Um, but I ended up with things that were on on uh, your lists, uh, at least partially. So not bringing in so many new things, but uh, starting with uh, Jason mentioned Driveways and uh, Brian Dennehy and the final speech in driveways that that his character gives in voiceover at the end about appreciating life is just so poignant. And I mean, even more so because you know that this is sort of Brian Dennehy's final speech in a film. Sure. Um, but it, it's got this this uh, melancholy, but also hopefulness to it. And it really sums up the tone of the movie. Um, and it definitely left me at the end of that movie. You know, I was always tearing up. You know, it's a it's an emotional thing. So that that speech at the end of Driveways um, and a, a really nice send off for Brian Dennehy. Uh, and then, Dave, you had picked The Vast of Night on your main list. And uh, the scene, I mean, there's so many great things. We talked about that one swooping single take shot. But the scene that sticks out to me is the uh, female character, the female lead played by Sierra McCormick when she is sitting at the she's a switchboard operator and she's just got this rat-a-tat moment of like moving from one call to another as she oh, yeah. discerns what's happening around the town by taking calls and making calls and hold on and I'll talk to this person. And then, you know, in the, the wires of the switchboard, the way that it used to work in the, in the 1950s or sixties, uh, it's just so fascinating. And I, you know, I said the movie feels like it could be a radio play or a podcast and it would be a fascinating bit, even if you just heard her, but the way that, that the motions go and it's all a single take, which is there's a lot of really long single takes in that movie. Um, but seeing her move those wires and everything just really gives you a sense of that character and how in command she is of that particular post as this teenager. So, uh, yeah. that scene in the vast of night and, and Sierra McCormick, who's really good in that movie. 
And then lastly, from a movie that Dave hated, uh, from Run, <laughs> the oh, thriller on Hulu with Sarah Paulson, which I enjoyed. I didn't love as much as some people did, but I thought it was a very effective thriller. But there's one of the most suspenseful scenes in any movie I saw this year where the main character who uh, is or appears to be uh, paralyzed and is trying to escape from her trap in her bedroom uh, that her mother, played by Sarah Paulson, has now uh, put her in. And she has to crawl outside her window and across the roof and break into the window of the bedroom of her mother's bedroom across the way. And she kind of cobbles together all of these little uh, objects within her room in order to get herself across. And as she's going across the roof and you're worried about if she's going to fall and she can't use her legs and also the mother may come home. And it's just such a wonderful, like, tense moment. As much as anything in, like, the Invisible Man or any other suspense movie that I saw this year, I felt like that was a distillation of great suspense. And uh, so that moment from Run, which uh, I know Dave hates. I thought that moment was so damn stupid, but (laughs) everyone seems to love that. Uh, So awesome for that. Well, hey, Josh, I want to (laughs) say in that that speech, uh, the Brian Dennehy speech, that's a great example of restraint of editing of not doing too much right because that could easily go overboard and become schmaltzy but just uh and that goes back to um the director andrew on also like just out of the park and um yeah a beautiful thing and uh yeah the uh the vast night thing definitely a rhythmic you know long take that um it's nice when directors let their actors uh work you know Sure. Right. And I mean, that I think in that movie, it's maybe partially a product of like the small budget and all he's got is the actors and the words that he wrote for them, but he makes the most of it. Well, I mean, you know, and a lot of that budget had to go to that production design, getting those, you know, uh, 60s and 50s era stuff looking correctly. Right, right. But I think it, it makes that movie overall makes the most of its uh, limited resources in a cool way. Right on. Well, I'll do my uh, three moments and I'll start off with one that was from a movie on my list. And that's from I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And it's the Infinitely Shaking Dog, which uh, I mean, that is made specifically for me. I mean, come on. It's, it's a weird Charlie Kaufman thing uh, about a dog. So, I mean, it's just so funny and weird. And I love it so much. It's so funny. Uh, and then... For my next one, uh, a movie that's probably my number 11. I haven't finalized the rest of my uh, going down the list uh, list yet, but it's Sonic the Hedgehog and uh, the Dr. Robotnik dance scene, which really any Jim Carrey scene in this movie is next on my list. I mean, I, I love him so much in this movie. It just transports you right back to uh, the, the 90s when he was just on a roll for amazing performance after amazing performance, just some of the funniest work he's done in forever and that whole dance sequence is just so ridiculous and funny um and then for my third one i actually went with a movie i didn't really like but i got such a huge laugh out of this scene uh it's the movie unhinged uh with russell crowe about a road raged uh situation where this guy is chasing this woman in his car and Russell Crowe really went into this movie just uh, in absolute cartoon bear mode, uh, <laughs> the way he looks for this role. And there's this scene where he, in his pickup truck, is chasing the girl, and she pulls this quick maneuver and like like a quick right turn and like gets out of the way of his truck. And 
he can't quite break in time and he slams on the brakes and the camera cuts to like a wide shot of the intersection and you see the truck skidding past the uh, the turn that the girl made and you hear from inside the truck him go I laughed so hard in this moment uh, it is just so ridiculous and one of my favorite moments of the year from wow what, how many Oscars does Russell Crowe have two or one Two, I think. I, I right? think two. Yeah, I think well, so. You yeah. know, an additional one for his work in Unhinged, of course. There you uh, go. There you go. I hope so. I you hope know, so. Josh, <laughs> I was I thought I was gonna have the best impression of the day with Ray Romano, but <laughs> that Russell Crowe. Man, that that was Dave's impression of <laughs> Russell Crowe roaring, yeah. I I will say, Dave, I appreciate your commitment also to Sonic the Hedgehog, which I think was your number two on the It sure was halfway through the year list, so yeah, it was almost on my top ten still, uh, but it got pushed down a little bit. So, well, yeah. good thing you found another use for Charlie Kaufman on the list, Dave. That uh, they were really worried. <laughs> that 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 shaking dog is a very creepy image, and that was one thing that was like that was in the trailer that a lot of people uh, noted even at that time. And I think that placement in the trailer maybe promised a more a creepier movie than sure. what was ultimately uh, delivered. But it's still a great image. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, So real quick, before we close up, I did write down some suggestions from our Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group, and I'm not going to read them all, but I was going to just quickly mention the ones that got multiple votes. so I'm going to mention Fat Man with, uh, from Ben Yonker and Joe Black both voted for that one. Uh, Jason, I know you liked it. I did the last third, especially. Let's get into it, baby. Let's uh, let's get into. Uh, Becky is the hour and a half I wanted from Fat Man, but the last third of Fat mm-hmm. Man is good. Sure, Josh, not not a fan. I didn't see it actually, so oh, okay. uh, I can't say. Right. Uh, Tenant. Ben Yonker and Sean Fallon both mentioned, uh, you know, uh, kind of a love or hate movie, a movie that this whole freaking year hinged on in a way. Uh, I, I liked it. I, I don't know. What'd you guys Can think? we just move on from this movie forever? <laughs> like the movie itself, the conversation, what it did, what it didn't do. It's like, whatever, dude, like it's, it's eh at best. Maybe that was the problem is it wasn't that good of a movie on top of all the rest of the crap. Yeah. I wasn't crazy about it, but I was glad that I went to see it at the drive-in and got that big screen experience for it. Hey, actually, sure. what do you think of the criticism of, uh, Washington as a lead? I think, I think he's getting some unfair criticism because I think he holds up well as a lead. I think so too. I think he does a good job in the performance. And I mean, he's supposed to just be, you know, a spy type, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think anything wrong with that movie is not really the fault of the actors. It's it's in the writing and it's in the the, the direction. Um, I think he does as good a job as you could expect someone to do with a character who is named the protagonist and deliberately doesn't have any like personal qualities. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, right. look, the, the script is just exposition, exposition. Now we are in this scene and I am explaining to you why we are in this scene. It's very on the nose the whole time. So pass. Yeah. Uh, the Five Bloods, both Chad Clinton Freeman and Sean Fallon brought up. Yay! Uh, I like I liked it a lot. It's like just below my top ten. I agree. It's just below my top ten too. Chad, you did it, buddy. You recommended a good movie. Um, I really like this movie. We mentioned Spike Lee between this and American Utopia having quite a year. Um, and he's taking so many chances that other big directors won't take, and I love that about him. And this third act is like. 
batshit insane uh, that works all all in all. Great, great movie. Also, Dave, probably about twelve or thirteen for sure. me. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't crazy about it, but um, and I think partially because it just goes in so many different directions, it feels like it's a mess. Um, but I have to respect Spike Lee for, uh, you know, not playing things safe, which he never does, but certainly not in that one as well. All right. Well, uh, and lastly, uh, mentioned by Joe Black and Sean Fallon is Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. No. Uh, admittedly, admittedly, I've been walking around since I watched that movie singing Waterloo to myself by Abba. Rachel McAdams is lovely. Um, it doesn't all come together, but there is some uh, uh, some funny stuff in there. Uh, the Icelandics when they're yelling at the the uh, duo to play that um, that song that's like a traditional Icelandic hit, you know, or play Ya Ya Dorkin or whatever it was. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, ding dong. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, not what yeah, you've yeah, been walking around singing. Yeah. No, I've been singing Waterloo, but that's funny. The Ya Ya. We just played Ya Ya Ding Dong. How many more times would you like just to play it? <laughs> all of them. That is all you will play. It, it had some moments. It definitely had a few moments. I feel like that impression was like, I laughed more at that than I did at the movie. <laughs> oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that's, that's the list of movies that got two votes. So I just wanted to bring those ones up and, uh, otherwise, yeah, I, I, I think that about does it for, for our top 10 list for the year. So, uh, guys, why don't you tell people about what's going on with awesome movie year? Okay. What is going on with well, awesome movie Well, by the year? time what this is? episode is released, uh, we will be rounding the corner into the home stretch of our 1984 season. And we are finalizing our next season, season seven, as we speak. Uh, we will reveal the year at the end of our 84 season, but we're going to move it back into this century. Let's just give them that hint, Josh. Yeah, but it's been a lot of fun in 1984 looking at so many of those big blockbusters. It's such a huge year for these pop culture sensations. So I think we've had a good time with that. We've had some cool guests, which was something that we hadn't had for a while but we got a chance to talk to some people connected to some of the movies that we covered. And so that was really fun and uh, yeah, amazing. We're going to come into season seven. So uh, awesomemovieyear.com is where you can find that. And uh, awesome movie pod on Twitter, awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram, I think. So, uh, and uh, as Jason is fond of reminding us, we're, we're very popular in Algeria. <laughs> That is right. Merci, Algeria. <laughs> and uh, and Josh, you have uh, an expanded like blog post on like your top ten list, right? On your website. Yeah, yeah. I wrote up my top ten list on my very dormant website, which uh, is briefly uh, returning for that purpose and that purpose only. Um, so if you go to joshbellhateseverything dot com, you can see my top ten list. And uh, I'm talking about my top five on KTNV. Although I think that will be over by the time this uh, episode is posted. So. You can never mind that. Hey, Dave, uh, <laughs> while we're plugging things that we work on, I want to plug something that you were instrumental in that we did this past year. Dave and I collaborated on another short film. He did the music for uh, it's a rom-com called So Close and Still. Very quick uh, three-minute film. Going to be debuting at the Damn Short Film Festival in February. That is awesome. I'm very excited for that. I love the music you did for it. Oh, thanks, man. I look forward well, to watching it. Yes. 
So thanks, uh, as always, guys, for being here. And I'm glad we were able to uh, pull off another, you know, top 10 for all three of us on here. This is uh, a lot of fun. And everybody, uh, look forward for me and Jason are doing a top five documentaries coming up soon. So uh, look forward to that episode, too. Try us out with Ya Ya Ding Dong! Hi, this is Wax Tracks Records here on 2909 South Decada. We buy all your old 45s, your old albums, any type of music memorabilia. Also, we sell music memorabilia, albums, CDs, and a lot. Come on down to Wax Tracks, 2909 South Decada, or give me a call at 702-362-4300. Thank you very much. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Josh Bell and Jason Harris from Awesome Movie Year. Uh, I, I love that little tradition we have of doing our top 10 lists at the end of each year. So I look forward to doing it again this coming year. So make sure you are subscribed to Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, make sure to subscribe to Awesome Movie Year. It is a great podcast, which is currently in the season on the films of 1984, and they are about to plan out their next season, which uh, we cannot tell you the year yet, but it's going to be a good one, I'm sure. An awesome one. So, uh, yeah, make sure you're subscribed. You can, of course, rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. You can follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join the Facebook group Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. And uh, don't forget to check out our Patreon, which has a bunch of bonus content from Piecing It Together, Awesome Movie Year, My Music Career, and we'll have plenty more coming in 2021. So that does it for today. We've got more special episodes coming up on the top five documentaries of 2020 and the top 10 first time watches of 2020 older movies that we watched for the first time josh bell's joining me for that one jason harris is joining me for the documentaries one and of course plenty more regular new episodes of piecing it together on the way so lots coming for now let's close you out with a piece of music like i always do and obviously another big thing aside from all these movies for 2020 was my album david rosen my self-titled sixth album i'm very very proud of this album it's available on bandcamp on itunes of course streaming on spotify and itunes and all that stuff i'm going to play out with a piece of music from that album and this one is called multiply uh, I'm pretty sure I've played it here on the show before. It also happens to be my latest music video, which was made by a really awesome uh, visual artist named Tobias Steiner here in Las Vegas. Uh, check out that video over on my YouTube channel, Music by David Rosen. And uh, yeah, this is Multiply. It's from the album David Rosen. Enjoy it, and we'll be back with more Piecing It Together coming up real soon.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.